Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I want to begin by just before I share, I have some statistics I want to share with you. Um, but before I do that, I just want to say I, I'm aware that some of the things that I'm going to talk about today may um, stir things in you, uh, especially some of you, it may hit kind of close to home. So with that said, I, I, I promise I, I will like be as cautious as I can as we walk forward in some of this, but I want to share some statistics with you because I believe today is a day of healing for some of you. The statistics that I I came across this week as I was kind of preparing for this, I found rather eye-opening. I've heard, many of you have probably heard this idea like uh, of the crisis of fatherlessness in America, right? Have you heard this? Like that that increasingly homes are are fatherless. Like statistically, it's it's increasing. And and people would say it's, it's reaching epidemic proportions in 2021. The U.S. Census Bureau produced some some statistics saying that 18.4 million children in America are raised in homes without a father. That's one in four. How many kids did you see up here? One in four kids are being raised without a father. Give you a little bit of, of reference, a frame of reference. To date, since 2019, Deaths in the COVID-19 pandemic worldwide have been around 6.6 million. So three times the number of deaths worldwide in COVID do we have in 2021 kids raised in fatherless homes, just in the United States. It's staggering how many kids are raised in the absence of a father. And of course, the implications of this is that kids grow up having no frame of reference for what healthy fatherhood looks like. They have no frame of reference for what it looks like to be a a, a man and and to grow up as a man or to have a healthy marriage or have a marriage at all. And if you haven't thought about the impact of that on our culture, it's significant. That's a disturbing statistic, right? Let me give you another one. How many of you are familiar with the organization RAIN? It's, uh, I, I want to make sure I don't say it wrong, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Have you heard about this? Some of you know this, this uh, given the work that you do. They've cited a report a little bit earlier, 2014, on their website that says one in nine girls and one in 53 boys under the age of 18 experience sexual abuse or assault at the hands of an adult. And many experts say that these numbers are actually probably a lot worse because childhood abuse doesn't mostly get reported. And what's worse is uh, uh, the YWCA said 96% of the people who uh, perpetuate uh, sexual abuse on children are men. 96%. That's staggering. It's staggering. And experts say that, that likely the pandemic made it worse because children were forced to be with their abusers. Can you imagine the, the impact of this? Of course, the impact and the implications are so many kids grow up with a fear or a severe dislike or even a, a hatred 
of men because of what they experienced. And so it's little wonder that when we perpetuate or we give people this idea that God is a man, God is a father who loves you, it's an obstacle rather than a place of embrace. We say, God is your true father. He loves you. And what people who experience an absent father or an abusive father hear is, God is much more of the same thing that I grew up with. And it's little wonder that people struggle with this idea of God as a man, as God as father, and the, the thought of God as father puts me in mind if, I'm, if I grew up in this place of, of the absent father who abandoned the family, who didn't care about us enough to stick around, who doesn't love me enough to stay close. And so why would I want anything to do with that God? The idea of God as a, as a man puts people in mind of, it's, it's just like the man who abused me all those years. Why would I want anything to do with that? And these are very real things that people experience now. Like if we just look at the statistics that I just read to you, statistically speaking, there's a significant number of people that this is your struggle. Here, today, now. And what I want to look at today is, is there anything that we can offer? Is there anything that God offers us for those who struggle to understand God as Father? For whom God as a Father is a painful thought. Is there anything that we can offer people in the world around us? We began this series asking for a friend last week, and we're addressing real questions that you all have submitted um, in, through December and into the, be, well, into the beginning of January. And what we're trying to do is, is address some of the questions that people have that they wrestle with. And last week we talked about how can we know God is real. This week I want to look at this question. The question is, is God a person? And if so, is God male? Is God a person? And if so, is God male? I told you last week is where we had multiple questions in the same vein, we sort of tried to put them together so that we weren't trying to address very similar questions week and week and week and week. This is a conglomeration of a number of questions. This is something that a lot of people actually wrestle with. So as we look at this question, I want to pray first and then, and then take a look at what we can discover uh, about God. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm so aware that even as I stand here, there's many people listening to me today who are right at the edge of, of just rejection of who you are. Some who have just decided, I can't accept God as Father. And Lord, I'm so aware that there's nothing that I can do or, or, or anything I can make happen to change the way things have been in people's lives. But you can. And so, God, I welcome you here. Holy Spirit, I welcome you to come, that you would fill me, that you would put your words in my mouth. God, I pray that we would be open to what it is that you want to say today. 
God, that many would find healing, would find hope. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So what I told you last week was that you can't prove the existence of God, right? There's no mic drop, there it is, God exists, deal with it. There's no, there's no such thing. But what you can do is discover as a summation of the evidence, right, that we can look at the world around us and we can, as a summation of the evidence, determine that probably there is a God, that probably God does exist. Odds are decent that God exists. But what I said last week is that doesn't necessarily tell you who God is. It doesn't necessarily tell you what the character of God is or what the nature of God is or what kind of God we're dealing with. All it tells you is that probably God exists. And throughout human history, people have dealt with this reality that they're aware that there is probably a God behind the things that they experience in the world. But throughout human history, they, they conceive of this God because they don't know what kind of God there is. They conceive of this God as being powerful. But most of the time in human history, God gets built as an image of human beings. If you ever look at pagan gods uh, throughout the centuries, what usually you discover is that, that humans have created them to mostly look and deal in a human way. That gods are male and gods are female, and of course they work together. And one of the primary functions, one of the most important functions, is their sexuality. It's a really important part because a, a, a divine way of engaging with these gods is in, in, in some sort of e expression of that. And I'm aware of the sensitivity of the, some of the people in the room. Um, but this is a, a really important part of what it is to deal with gods, and that it spirals into temple prostitution. If you've ever done any study of, of, of historical uh, religion, what you'll discover is that that's a common way of dealing with the deities. And what people do is they try to conceive of probably there are gods behind the things that we care about. So if you're in a farming community, there's probably a God behind the sun. There's probably a God behind the water. There's probably a God behind the soil and the earth. And so the idea of dealing with these gods is how can we make these gods do the things that we want them to do? And this is the, the pagan understanding of what gods are. But when we turn to the pages of Scripture, one of the things that we find is that the Israelites had discovered that God revealed himself not as a plurality of gods behind all of the things, but as one God who made everything and who is over everything. And in fact, that's actually the function or one of the functions of Genesis 1 and 2 is to describe that there is one God who created all of the things that the other nations say there's a God behind each one of. If you do some of the study of, of Genesis 1 as as, as an argument against ancient Near Eastern gods. And what Genesis 1 is saying is, no, there's not a God of all of these things. There's not a God of the moon and a God of the stars. There is the God who created all of the things. And what we discover in Genesis, right in Genesis 1, is that we're told that the essence of God's nature cannot be captured by male or female. That's what we see in verse 27. It says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God on the earth can't be captured by just creating a man. The image of God on the earth can't be create, uh, captured by just creating a, a female. 
In order to capture the essence of what humanity is, is reflecting into the world about who God is, it takes both of them. That there's something about maleness and femaleness that's created, but that God is above all of that. That God is neither male nor female. But somehow the two together teach us something about who God is. Show us something about who God is. Not surprisingly then, all through the Old Testament, God's characteristics are described in both masculine and feminine forms. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 32.18 says this, You deserted the rock who fathered you, a masculine description. You forgot the God who gave you birth, a feminine description, in one verse. Or look at Psalm 123. Verse 2 says, As the eyes of, the, of slaves look to the hand of their master, masculine. As the eyes of a female slave looks to the hand of her mistress, feminine. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. You get masculine and feminine in the same verse. And you can see these kind of descriptions. We could spend the whole rest of the time. I don't want to do that. But we could spend the whole rest of the time looking at all over the Old Testament, the way people portrayed what they understood of God was in terms of things that they already had experienced and knew. So, for example, God gets referred to as a husband. Isaiah 54 says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. So what's happening? I mean, you, you can see in Psalms that God gets described as a rock. God get, gets described as a tower, as a fortress. And what's happening all through Scripture is they're trying to, to understand who God is based on things they already understand, that God is somehow above all of these things. And yet somehow we need to try to get our minds around what God is like. And so we refer to God all through the Bible in terms of things we understand. That's what's happening here. Some of you, how many of you remember the shack? You guys remember the shack? Did you guys, were you book people or movie people? Both. Both, okay. A couple book. Are you, if, you're, if you're a book people, are you like the, the book was way better than the movie? I feel like book people are like, the book is way better than the movie. That's what they always say, even if the movie was really good. You guys remember that in the shack, the role of God is played by a black woman. Do you remember that? Did I just spoil it? Some of you are like, I didn't see the shack. I, I was... <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> the role of God in the shack was played by a black woman. And uh, I don't think it's a surprise to say that in some Christian circles, like heresy, people were upset. Did you, do you remember that? Some people, some of, some of, some of you were upset? I don't know. Um, but people were really, really upset. But the character in the shack makes this statement. I am neither male nor female, even though both genders are derived from my nature. It's a very biblical statement. What Scripture says is that God doesn't have human biology. God is not male and God is not female. John 4, 24 says this, God is spirit. God is spirit. God is not a human being. God is spirit. And before some of you stand up and point fingers at me and say, you're wrong, what about Jesus? Don't, don't get ahead of us. We'll get there. Let's go chronologically a little bit. We'll get there. 
But God is not primarily a human being, but God is a person. God is not primarily a human being, but God is a person. And we don't have time to dig deeply into this, but the Bible reveals that God is three persons. Which we come up with the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, I don't have time. That's not the essence of this question. Maybe we could talk about that, you know, for a few hours later. But since you all would like to go home at a reasonable hour today, we're going we're gonna to put a pin in that one. We're going to hold on to that one for another time. I'm going to, a little story. We had our very first, very first ever Welcome to Vineyard class years ago in the train station, right? And, um, you know, I was like, oh, come, you can ask us any sort of questions you want, you know, get to know us as the church. And the very first question was, can you explain the Trinity? I was like, I sort of meant like, did you move here a long time ago? <laughs> do, do you like football? You know, I mean, I, I thought we were going to talk about, you know, normal things. Can you explain the Trinity? Anyway, we don't want to be here the rest of the day, so I'm not going to do that. But what I do want to say is that what I'm going to talk about today of God being a person is really critical. And if you understand God as a person, the understanding of God as a person applies equally of God as three persons, okay? And we can talk about that another time, but I just want you to pay attention to this. Here's the deal. There's a really big implication for God being a person. Church history, Tertullian in the second century was the first one to say God is a person. And what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean that God is a person? First of all, being a person means that you have an identity. To be a person means that you have an identity. If you've ever been a victim of identity theft, you know how important this one is, right? Have you ever lost your, been a victim of identity theft? My parents were like a few months ago. What you discover as soon as somebody steals your identity or your credit history and your social security number and creates another you, everybody that you talk to says, which one's the real you? Are you the real you or is this the real you? There was another credit card opened. Is that you or is that a different you? That there's something about identity that, that, that is essential to what it means to be a person. And even though your identity is much more than your credit score and your social security number, you've discovered that if you've ever had your identity stolen. In Exodus 3, we read this. Exodus 3, verse 13 says, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. You know, when Jerry and I were picking names for our kids, I don't know how you guys went about it, those of you who have kids, but what we did, this is probably the normal way, is we prayed every day from the day that we knew that Jerry was pregnant, asking God for what God's name for this child was. What we wanted to know was, God, what kind of essence, what kind of character, what kind of identity does this kid have, and what name do you give to this kid? And so we prayed every day until we felt like we had received from the Lord the essence, the character, the identity of the kid, and that was the name that we gave to our kids. 
And this is how names work in the Bible. In the Bible, the name conveys something about the identity of the person or the God. The name is critical because when you understand its name, you understand something essential to who they are. And so when God chooses to reveal himself to Moses, he gives him his name and he says, Yahweh, I am who I am. Or another way to put it is, I will be who I will be. I am the eternally existent one. There's not ever a time that I won't be. I am who I am. And incidentally enough, for what it's worth, God communicates his name in a masculine form. For whatever else we have to to say about who God is, God's choice of revelation of who he is by his name comes in a masculine form. What God is communicating, though, is that he has, is the essence of who he is. He has an identity. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Being a person means having an identity. The second thing that it means to be a person is to have the ability to communicate and to act. To have the ability to communicate and to act. As God reveals his identity to Moses, he communicates a little bit later, verse 18, uh, to Moses what's going to happen. He says this, he says, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. If you know how this story goes, eventually Moses gets his acting gear and he goes to the king and he says, let my people go, right? You know this one? Let my people go. And of course, the Pharaoh says, I'm not doing that. And God makes good on his promise. He says, he's not going to let you go and I'm going to demonstrate to him in a powerful way why he should let you go. And so you read of these plagues that God sends. God has the ability to communicate what he's going to do and to act on it. So being a person means having an identity and being able to communicate and act. The third marker of a person is the ability to be in a reciprocal relationship. The ability to be in a reciprocal relationship. You've heard us talk about, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard us talk about emotionally focused. If you go all the way through emotionally focused... The weekend is the, the two-day is, is the beginning, the intensive. Many of you have done the two-day intensive. If you press on from there and you start walking all the way through the rest of it, what you will discover eventually is that the way some people deal with anxious situations is to give up their own personhood in, a, in, a, in something called fusion. So when they're anxious, they cease to be a person of themselves and they actually become absorbed their own distinct identity and ability to act becomes absorbed into someone else. If you understand this dynamic, you'll see it everywhere. This dynamic is what's at play in codependent relationships. Now listen, I've seen this at play in all kinds of relationships. Parent-child, husband-wife, boyfriend-girlfriend. When you cease to be completely you and are only identified by your relationship to someone else, You've given up personhood, the the ability to be in a reciprocal relationship. 
All of your decisions then get made. I've decided that I'm going to do this, not because I want to do it, but because the relationship I'm in dictates this. At some level, you've given up personhood. There's a certain thing essential to the nature of personhood to be able to consciously and choicefully choose. Talking is easy. I'll come over here. Maybe it's better over here. There's something essential to being a person that involves being able to make a choice to be in a reciprocal relationship. And what we discover, it was easier over there. I don't know. What we discover about God, verse 15, it says this. God also says to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. The reason he points out those three cases is because in each of those instances, God has gone to that person and said, I want to engage in relationship with you. Here is the nature of our relationship. I will do these things, you do these things. This is how this relationship functions. You can then choose if you want to be in a relationship with me. If you look through the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over, God chooses to enter into relationship with his people, but he gives them the option. There's something essential to being able to engage in reciprocal relationships to what it means to be a person. So if we look at those three things, God has identity, God has the ability to communicate and act, and God has the ability to enter into reciprocal relationships, we would say God is a person. God is not human but spirit, and God is a person. Now, that was a really long explanation, right? Some of you are like, are you done yet? Let me tell you why I spent that much time describing this and what it has to do with whether or not God is a man. Because God is a person, it means that God can be known. Don't overlook how important this is. Because God is a person, that means God can be known and God can be known on his own terms as his own person apart from anyone else. If you are someone who struggles with God because of negative connotations that you bring from males in your past, what I want you to understand is that God can be known apart from your negative experience. God can be known apart from that man who hurt you. God can be known apart from the father who abandoned you. God can be known on his own terms. And he can redeem and restore the the nature of those relationships if you will let him. God can be known. And that's good news because God can redefine what it is to be a father. If you grew up in a home where the experience you had of your father was traumatic or absent or even just unhelpful. I want you to know that God is not more, just more like the experience that you had. God is a different experience altogether. That God is not, well, I guess I get more absence. I guess I get more abuse. I guess, guess God is just an angry tyrant, just like my father. It's not true. Every parent has a responsibility to reflect to you what God is like. And can I just say, as a parent, every one of us is terrible at it in varying degrees. If you're a parent, you know this one. It's so hard to, even if you're consciously trying to do it, it's so hard to reflect to your kids exactly what God is like. And we all fail to varying degrees. But if you'll allow it, God can be known on his own terms. And whatever way that your parent has tainted or distorted your ability to see God clearly, know that God wants to redefine that for you. 
God wants to heal that in you. God wants to change that for you. God wants you to know that you have a father who loves you. God wants to bring healing to the places of wounding and of brokenness. And he wants to bring new understanding of what it is to actually have a father who loves you. And loves you well. You know, we grow up, we have this experience where we think our childhood is normal. Right? Like, we grow up and our experience of our mother, we assume, is what mothers are like. Our experience of our father, we assume, is what fathers are like. Right? And so we decide that this is normal. Until we start hanging around with other people. Right? The first time you went, if you're married or you're in a relationship, the first time you went to your significant other's home and you met their parents, you were like, these people are different than the people that were at my house. They have the same roles, but they're different. Something different about them. And what you discover is there's some things about these other mothers and fathers that you like better than your own house. And what you also discover is there's some things about these these mothers and fathers that you don't like near as much as you did your own house. But what I want you to see is that it changes the way that you understand these people. It changes the way you understand motherhood and fatherhood. Friend, because God is a person you can know, God can redefine for you what a father is supposed to be like. If you'll allow him, God will demonstrate what it's like to have a father who's present with you who loves you unconditionally. God will demonstrate to you what it's like to have a father who's looking out for you, who actually enjoys being with you, looks forward to being with you. And all that sounds great, doesn't it? And it is. But there's something that we all want from God that he can't give us if he's always and forever just spirit. Every last one of us wants to know that God understands our experience and still loves us. Every one of us wants empathy from God. We want to know that God knows what it's like to be us. So that whenever he encourages us, whenever he challenges us, whenever he tells us that he loves us, we know that he understands completely who we are and what our experience is and is saying these things even though that's the the reality. Every one of us wants God to have empathy for us. And so God took on flesh. See, one of the big functions of God taking on flesh is Jesus, is that God can understand. Hebrews 2.17 says this. For this reason, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friend, when Jesus came, he experienced full life as a human. You say, well, what does God know about what it's like to, for me to go through temptation after temptation? I'm trying to get clean, I'm trying to get whole, and yet temptation hits me all the time. What does God know about what it's like to be temptation? Hebrews says, that Jesus was tempted in every way. See, God knows what it is like to be tempted. God knows what it is like to struggle through temptation. You say, well, what does God know what it's like to be excluded and ridiculed and called names? Friend, Jesus was ridiculed and excluded and called names. God knows what it's like. 
You say, well, what does God know what it's like to be verbally abused or emotionally abused or physically abused? God doesn't know my experience. God doesn't know the trauma that I grew up with. Friend, Jesus was mocked, spit on, physically abused, and killed. God knows what it's like to be you. Friend, because Jesus took on human flesh, God is able to empathize with what it's like to be you. God knows what it's like to be you. He knows all the places of weakness. He knows how hard it is to be human in the world. When there's an enemy that wants to crush your soul, he knows because he's experienced it. And he died so that you would have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with your true father. But Jesus didn't stay dead. You see, death didn't win. All the things that were done to you that seemed like they've marked you forever, seemed like they've won and I'm just going to have to deal with it forever, death doesn't win. Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised to new life. And after Jesus was resurrected, he was ascended into heaven. And this is really good news because what Scripture says is that he, as a fully God, fully man person, is advocating for you with full understanding of what it's like to be you. And he's standing on your behalf next to the Father and saying, this is what they're experiencing. This is what it's like. I've been there and I know. God knows what it's like to be you and you have an advocate for you. This is good news. Friend, you can know God. And if you'll allow it, he'll redefine for you what it means to have a father. He'll redefine what, it, what a man looks like for you when you have experienced negative connotations. And if you'll allow it, he'll heal the wounds that you carry. This is the invitation of the God revealed in Scripture that he loves you and that he wants a relationship with you. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.